Welcome, everybody, to Episode 7 of the Bomber Brothers Podcast, part of the Pinstripe Alley community of podcasts. Sean and Ryan with you, as always, and here to talk about a lot more Yankee wins and a lot more Yankee home runs, mainly by the bat of Glaber Torres and Gary Sanchez. As we record on a Thursday morning, the Yankees have one game left in Baltimore in this four-game set going for the sweep, and Sean, I'm pretty sure it's going to take a lot to get Glaber and Gary back on the bus out of Baltimore because I'm sure that it's not a place they want to leave right now given the way they've been swinging the bat in this series. Either that or they're going to try to take Baltimore with them and uh, just have the Orioles waiting for them at Yankee Stadium when they get home rather than the Padres. But, uh, yeah, what a what a series. I mean, I, we were texting each other last night just laughing when Torres hit his second homer yesterday and uh, Sanchez had mixed in that just absolute bomb. And he continues to rake. And um, after, I mean, the, the doubleheader to, on last Thursday, Torres kind of stole the show and carried them to a win, which, um, by the way, I thought Boone managed that doubleheader really good last week. Uh, let me just start off by saying that because I know we'll get into last night a little bit. But uh, it looked like their offense was going to be a problem. And then the bullpen day on Sunday, they broke out. And then the Orioles helped them keep breaking out. And now over the last six games, they have one, two, three, four, five players with OPSs over a thousand in their last six games. So, not bad. No, and of and of course, it always helps to face Orioles pitching to get those that get those numbers up. I'm, I'm sure that's not sustainable against other teams like the Astros or uh, trying to think of other teams in the American League that are really, really good. Uh, Tampa, <laughs> Tampa Bay, but the Yankees seem to beat them too. Well, the Red Sox have been playing really well lately. They have. They have. They uh, they got a, a huge win for them last night in 13 innings. And uh, the best team in the American League, the Minnesota Twins. Very true. Very true, as I'm yawning here on a Thursday morning. but um, Day game after a night game. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, it's, it's just the Orioles, but... I, Personally, for me, I am lo- obviously there's Torres, but I'm loving this season by Gary Sanchez so far. Not just because we love Sanchez and it's awesome to see him do really cool things like we knew he could do after watching him in 2016 and 2017, but it's also nice to kind of silence the the anti-Gary crowd that always seems to be very loud at times. But we have heard pretty much nothing from. Uh, this season and that's that's a beautiful silence absolutely and I mean I think uh, Lindsay Adler had the article where she was looking at all of his his stat cast data and just saying like this is kind of what Sanchez has been he's just decided I'm not going to hit ground balls anymore and I'm just going to hit bombs uh, which has been awesome same exit velocity and everything he's just gotten that launch angle up a little bit and um, I mean this is the hitter we saw and, and that we know he can be and um it's it's been great. I mean, when when you mix in, he's been improved behind the plate. I mean, have we complained at all this year really about the pass ball situation? Like, and by we, I mean the fan base as a whole. I, I don't think so. He's had a little hiccup with the throwing, which is weird, but um, he's definitely much improved all around. And when you have your catcher with an OPS for the season of over a thousand 
dude, like just take whatever he gives you on defense because this is insane. Yeah, he's got he's got 15 homers, and we're not even at Memorial Day. And and that's something we talked about with Mark Carrig a, f- a few weeks back. His all of his X stats are through the roof at the at the top of the league, and that's right around where they were in 2016 and 2017. This is a guy that hits the ball on the screws at a incredibly consistent rate and i think it's very safe to say that 2018 was an anomaly the shoulder surgery over the offseason probably suggests that that was something he was dealing with last year and now he's back to being what he was and just crushing opposing pitching and obviously it's a little more heightened when you play a team like the orioles who give up home runs at an even more alarming rate than sanchez hits them so just ask gary thorne <laughs> that's that's been a, that's been a fun narrative this this uh series i mean honestly if you're gary thorne you're announcing the orioles like what else can you do but have a yeah. little fun with it and have this defeated tone when <laughs> when they just give up constant home runs to sanchez and torres that that's been fun i know we love gary thorne especially for his uh national broadcast whether it whether it be from the 95 alds calling mattingly's and ruben sierra's Paul O'Neill's big home runs in that series, or I also love when he did the hockey playoffs. Yeah, and he had he had the best call of the Jeter walk-off, in my opinion, because yeah. they were playing the Orioles that day, so you, you get to listen from that feed. His was great, probably followed by Bob Costas. And um, don't, don't forget, you could find his calls to the 2001 World Series and the 2000 World Series as well, which the, the Tino and the Brocious home runs, he did a great job on, and... Um, the you know the cheater leadoff homer so great announcer but uh, you know I saw on Twitter he he should demand a trade <laughs> <laughs> I would I would trade him for uh, for a couple one of the couple of Yankee announcers straight up I probably would too but I, I would consider Ken Singleton untouchable he he's the Yankees even favorite. yeah even though he's in his walk here I'm uh, yeah I'm not giving him up for anything. <laughs> Although the rumor is that once he walks, they might have CeCe in the booth. I would love that. that, that was, that'd be cool. Um, uh, speaking of announcers, really quick, just to diverge, did you see uh, Dan Clark Sports getting in on our Yankees mother, Susan Waldman? Yeah, yeah, he seems just like a complete idiot. And, <laughs> the the replies were were so good. If he didn't delete his account, his uh, his ratio would look like Ted Williams. Like you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it was something. It, it was awesome. I mean, it was a tweet that was very much deserved to get have your account deleted. You just a complete moron and saying something about like, uh, you know, auto. What's she talking about? Has she, has she ever played baseball? It's like, well, you know. And then I I can't remember who it was, like, trying to tweet uh, a link to his baseball reference page or something like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> like from the old man yeah. from like the 1800s, yeah. <laughs> uh, the best were like, well, you've never signed a contract with the Yankees, so you shouldn't have been reporting on it, which was obviously a dig at him for the Machado yep. crap. So uh, hopefully uh, his account stays deleted this time. Yeah. What an asshole. But uh, anyway. Oh, I'm sorry. You could beat me out there. Uh, or just mark this explicit. <laughs> no, it's fine. But anyway, circling the wagons back. Yeah, I mean, they're they're crushing the ball. And I mean, don't forget, they had a, uh, a big big showing against the Rays in that last game last week uh, of, of the weekend. And um, 
you know, before that, they were scuffling a bit on offense, especially that Saturday game against the Rays, which was an exciting game, but um, one that they kind of let get away. But, I mean, let's take the Orioles series out of it. They still won four of six from the best competition in the division right now in Tampa Bay. So, it's it, you know, I'm not concerned that they're only beating bad teams because they've beaten in, in back-to-back series against them, the team that was leading the division up until we took it from them. Yeah, absolutely. And they were some thrilling comeback wins mixed in there as well against the Rays, which was great to see them not giving up. And Luke Voigt seemed to be hitting much better after his cold streak. Even Tyro Estrada has been, been hitting the ball well, which is awesome to see. And it's the last, the last week, his OPS is 1429 (laughs) in five games. Obviously not sustainable, but awesome to know. Nah, I'm going to say no. I hope so, but hopefully, hopefully he can keep it up until Didi comes back. I'll just, well, I'll just say that. But uh, you know, again, I, I I get it. It's just the Orioles. But unlike last year, the Yankees are now doing what they're supposed to do against the Orioles, which is, you know, beating them senseless. And <laughs> you you were worried. You were worried after the opening weekend of the season, you know, like, oh, no, here we go again. The Yankees are going to be a 500 team against uh, a team that's going to lose 100 games this season. Uh, but since then, they've been just running over them, which is what they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, you, you mentioned all the gaudy offensive numbers that are, again, probably not going to last. But that's what the numbers should look like against pitching that the Orioles have, which is completely terrible. So... I don't think it makes Torres and Sanchez's incredible home run rates against the Orioles any less remarkable. They're still a major league team, and the fact that they can, the fact that a guy are they like, though? <laughs> the fact that a guy like Torres can already have four multi home run games against the Orioles, and it's not even Memorial Day, is is just completely baffling. That's unbelievable, and something that you love love to see. I mean, Torres had a, a little bit of a rocky second half last year after the hip injury kept him out of the All-Star game, but I mean, looking at him now, it seems like he's heading back to another All-Star game, and he's been uh, everything the Yankees hoped he would be as their top prospect so far. Yeah, he's he's done an incredible job this year, really blossoming, uh, you know, while, while he's fully healthy. And, and, you know, it seemed like he put a lot of pressure on himself early when all the injuries hit, but um, since we've kind of gotten Sanchez back and um, and now um, what's his face Hicks, who you know out of the gate not doing so well, but his at bats have improved lately. Um, it seems like it's taken some pressure off Torres, and he's just having a lot of fun going up there and uh, and killing the ball. Yeah, I, I don't have a very high concern level about Hicks. I just think he's oh, yeah, back in shape. I mean, he didn't have much tune up for the season of course he had his rehab stint but you know it's going to take time for him to settle back in yeah absolutely um i I don't disagree there one of the guys unfortunately that we're not going to see as soon as we hoped coming back to help out take some of the pressure off and is stanton with the the knee or the the calf or whatever bothering him after somebody drilled him yeah can we find out who hit him in a what was it a a a, slot, a sim game or something like that? The hell, yeah, what I, the hell was going on? Somebody was 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 pretty wild. By the way, just really quick, just not to go back to the Susan thing, but what spurred it on? 
how many people are going to almost hit Luke Voigt unintentionally? Like, I feel like he's always getting his tower buzzed. Is yeah. that, in my imagining, I feel like it always happens. I, I I guess they're just trying to figure out how to how to slow him down. I mean, I think they're throwing at the wrong guy. If he gets mad and decides to run at you, he's probably going to. It's going to be like pretty the Hulk badly. At you. It's going to be like the Hulk throwing around uh, Loki in the first Avengers up at yeah. the Avengers Tower. <laughs> Good scene. Yeah, I I don't know, but um, uh, it sucks about Stan. It's been a long road back for him, and then you see people online like calling him soft and stuff. Oh the Yankees, are, the Yankees are winning. He played through a bum hamstring all year last, well, the second half of last season, um, and didn't and play what he took four games off the whole year. Played 158 games because he knew that Judge was hurt and. Uh, they had all those injuries in the second half of last year. And had a WRC plus of 154 while Judge was hurt last year. So everybody needs to chill on, on Stanton. He's he's an all-star, and, and once he comes back, I'm sure uh, I'm sure he'll do just fine. Yeah, it's, that's uh, very very ironic for people to call him soft. I mean, have, have you seen that guy? He would probably knock the crap out of anyone who called him soft and i I, i've never been personally plunked on the calf or like the lower leg but that's also where you have some of the you know it's not like getting hit on the thigh or the upper arm where there's you know some more meat to protect you it's probably really sore i still don't know how he gets hit in a sim game you know mistakes happen and players are getting hit at an alarming rate this year which um you've never seen me throw bp (laughs) I can't remember who did an article on the rise of hit by pitches this year, but um, but it was a good one. I just can't remember who wrote it. Maybe it was Ben Lindbergh. Um, but anyway, so it's going to be a little while for Stan. I'm personally bummed because it looks like we're going to be able to go to the game on Memorial Day, and it's his bobblehead day, and I was really hoping he would be back for that because before this happened, the consensus was – He's probably not going to be back for the Royals series, but they were eyeing the next series, which starts on Memorial Day. So that mm-hmm. that uh, that would have been cool. But now it looks like he's going to be about another week behind. Yeah, that that stinks. But um, just as long as he gets back healthy, and it, it, you know, it looks like one of the guys that is ahead, even though he was a little dehydrated, is <laughs> Sir Didi. Uh, he went one for three yesterday as the DH. So hopefully he'll get back out there at short. Uh, tomorrow but I mean it's considering what we thought the timeline was on DD this is a really good story so far knock on wood but um, I, I mean the sooner we get him back the better the infield's been really good but when you get your I, I mean you know judge and DD to me are the heart and soul of the team and and it, it's just it, it'll be great to have him back hopefully in less than a month now yeah, I really wish someone took me up on that bet I proposed on Twitter that he'd be back before Tulo because I am very confident in that right now and obviously so happy about it. You want Didi back playing the infield rather than Tulowitzki anyway, given his value in the dugout and on the field. But yeah, I mean, look, the Yankees are in an incredible stretch right now. The fact that they're in first place given A, how the Rays have played to start the season, and given what's happened to the Yankees roster throughout the season, it's it's really remarkable. But at the same time, you know, in terms of run production, the Yankees are kind of in the middle of the pack right now in the league. So, you know, 
some guys are starting to regress a, re- a little, save for names like Tyro Estrada, who's raking right now in terms of looking at the replacement players. But a, a lot of this win streak has been fueled by a really efficient pitching staff. The bullpen has gotten better after a shaky start to begin the season. And uh, something I wrote about at Pinstripe Alley yesterday, I feel like the rotation has improved because, like you mentioned, they've also been aided by a, a m- much better defense on the infield. Because when you have a staff that includes guys like Tanaka and CeCe and then a bullpen that includes uh, Britain, you get so many ground balls. And you replace Andahar with Urshela and you put LeMahieu at second base, Voight's been better in the infield in terms of... Uh, DRS and his UZR. So, yeah, he's he's been good. You haven't noticed like some of the stuff that you would last year for sure. Yeah, and you replace Torres's numbers at second base with Lemayhu's this year, and Torres has now improved a lot at shortstop compared to what he was doing there last year when he had him slide over to short for a while when Didi got hurt at that in that collision at first base. I think it was with Kendrys Morales now on the Yankees, but. <laughs> Uh, but so you factor in all those, and there's you know much less balls getting through to the outfield, much less traffic on the bases. So I'm I think I think that's also played a big role in the Yankees winning a lot more games than people expected, given the depletion of their roster. Absolutely, infield defense has been really good. It was weird um, the other night. Um, what's his face made another error? Um, my hero, Urshela, but. It happens, but the outfield defense is kind of what seems like it needs the most work right now. <laughs> and uh, ironically, Stanton will probably improve that because he's a better right fielder than than Clint Frazier for sure. Um, a lot but, of people are, <laughs> yeah. But, and we love we love Frazier. It's great to yeah, see him. Yeah, and the thing is, he's regressed a bit uh, lately, so that's what makes the Stanton injury so hurtful. But uh, you know, when Didi comes back, they're going to have some choices to make on that infield, and we'll. You know, we'll see what what happens there. Um, but uh, the only other injury, I guess, is it looks like Paxton should be back next week. But it looks like CeCe's going to miss his next start with the um, with the knee, which happens all the time. It doesn't worry me, even though everything that's happened this year has been worrisome. Uh, but D, uh, but CeCe knows how to take care of it. Uh, good thing he said something. I don't know why he was left in so long that inning. I mean, I understand you're trying to steal outs at that point and get the guy a win, but he was getting hammered. And I think, you know, like every, we were texting, like, what the hell is Boone doing? And he lived to tell about it. But I mean, with what he had that inning, you should have went to one of your better relievers, hopefully preserved like the three or the four run lead. And then you could bring in, uh, one of the lesser relievers in the next inning, like Holder or something like that. I I thought CC was cooked before that inning started. I mean, the last inning in two thirds, he was yeah. getting hit hard. It, sometimes he got bailed out, whether it was a nice uh, leaping catch on a smoked line drive by uh, Lemayhu <laughs> uh, to help bail him out. So, and then there were a, a couple balls hit to the wall. I think Gardner caught one right at the uh, face of the wall. So he was, yeah, he was getting hit hard. And, and and like you said, I think it's awesome that CC brings it up right away when he starts feeling it in his knee, because he's been dealing with it for so long that he knows when it's time to get it taken care of. And we've seen how he pitches when he comes back from it. So like you said, there's not a huge concern just because this seems to have become like an annual operation for CC, given 
everything he's dealt with in that knee. I think the only thing for me that would say maybe it's a little concerning is that it's it's happening much earlier in the season this year than normal. So it's probably something that might be getting progressively worse. You hope he can he can weather that for one more season before he retires at the end of the year. So, you know, hopefully after this one he you know, misses a start or two at the most and then comes back and is uh and is much better, but th- they are going to need him down the stretch because you don't know you don't know what Severino's going to give you when he comes back and you're going to get to an innings crunch with Domingo Herman so you know you're not sure what the rotation's going to look like towards the end of the season hopefully there's a Dallas Keuchel in there and and he can become an you know efficient even though he's missed so much but it, you you would imagine after the draft passes that the Yankees at least take a look at him, but again, you don't know what the rotation is going to look like. So the Yankees probably need an an effective CC Sabathia for the second half of the season. Yeah, I, I'm, it, it happened early, but also you have to remember, like with the way the schedules worked out, with the rainouts, he's not getting six days rest pretty much anywhere, uh, especially in the stretch coming up, and. Even though he started later, he's probably had to ramp up a little bit faster than he would admit that he should have because of the heart issue. So I think maybe he just went a little hard. I mean, um, you know, he's still done a, a, a great job, so it's not like he's not effective. So hopefully he just gets it taken care of, misses his start, which, by the way, I was looking at the thing because I was pretty I was thinking seriously about going on Memorial Day. He would have been pitching, which would have been awesome. Uh-huh. Now, hope, now, hopefully you'll get Paxton. Um, and we'll take it from there. But um, so they've went what six and one, seven and one since we last spoke. Two against the Orioles, two against the yep. uh, Rays, and then three against the Orioles. So, what was your favorite? Uh, was your favorite moment since we last recorded of the week that's passed? Oh, definitely the the comeback against Tampa with the Urshela walk off. I'd say uh, you know Torres rips that double. That one hops the wall that John Sterling yelled that it was gone, and I was clapping in my car and pounding the steering wheel, and then he, then he reverts back, and I got really mad for a second. But it just set up Urshela, so I was okay. I was okay with it after. But man, I was I was fuming with Sterling for a second there because I was driving down to, to Jersey, <clears throat> excuse me, to see you guys. But um, but yeah, I think that was my favorite moment, just getting, getting to Jersey and then going right to the. MLB app and watching all those video clips that was a that was a, definitely a fun night yeah I um I was driving home from Endgame uh listening to that on the radio and I heard the same call that it is gone and then it's off the wall and then you watch the replay and it didn't even reach the wall so that was confusing uh <laughs> but yeah what that was a great win and and then obviously the big comeback against the Orioles even though it's the Orioles with them basically handing us the game with all the errors and mental mistakes that they made um I mean, as soon as that pop-up behind the plate, that Voight pops up, gets dropped, you know they're probably winning the game in that inning. And yeah. sure enough, Sanchez comes up and, and goes yard. So, yeah, definitely uh, I would say the the walk-off by um, the legend of Gio Urshela followed by the three-run homer by Sanchez would be the, the two highlights of the week for me as well. All right. Well, I think the highlight of the week for me last week was um, having David Cohn and Jack Curry on our podcast because their book came out last week, and we uh, we wanted to play it again for anyone that might have missed it, and just because that was simply our most 
exciting guest that, that we've probably ever had on. And now their book is officially part of the New York Times bestseller list as of yesterday. So if anyone if anyone missed it, we'll play it again for you real quick. And here's David Cohen and Jack Curry after a quick break. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're joined now by two exciting guests. They're the co-authors of the new book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. First, we have, of course, former Yankee great, and you can catch him in the Yes booth now, David Cohn. David, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. And also, uh, who else helped write the book and also helped write a book with Derek Jeter, Jack Curry. You can catch him on the Yes Network as well, doing great analysis. Jack, thanks for coming on. No problem. We appreciate you guys having us. So, Jack, can you uh, just walk us through the process of how this book came to be? You know, did it? When did it start out as just an idea, and when did it become like, okay, we're doing this? And and how? And was there an effort to make it different from so many other biographies that you see from other former players? Because it really seems like this book took on a, a more unique angle, aside from just you know, this is my story. In, in some way, Ryan, it, it probably started more than 20 years ago because I've been watching David Cohn on the mound for longer than that, maybe a quarter of a century. But speaking in more recent terms, a few years ago, just having listened to David on Yes and obviously working with him on Yes and watching him pitch for so many years, I had this idea of doing a book where you crawled inside the mind of a pitcher. None of us really know what it's like to not have the feel for your slider or, or not know if you're going to be able to throw that splitter and get that movement on it that you want and just just to feel desperate out there and as as great as David's career was one of the great things I think about this book is he shows you that there is a vulnerability to major league pitchers even when you're the best of the best you you're going to have some issues on the mound so I approached David in the back of the Yankee Stadium press box a few years back I, I gave him my my little pitch and I waited for his response and it was quick and he said I like the idea let's do it so we started working on it and, and I'm glad you said you feel it's different because we we did try to be different because as much as this is a quote memoir and it covers David's career and it, and it has obviously a million stories from his career and his life there's also lessons in there there are philosophies in there there are, there are theories in there and then there are stories about Jeter Mariano Pettit uh, Carter, Hernandez, Darling, Strawberry, Gooden. So we tried to take you on a ride through David's career, but we also took some some pit stops away from his career and told about the personal side and, and the human side of, of his life and the game. And David, in, in the book, you talk about how your 93 season is what started your interest in sabermetrics and you know more advanced numbers because it was by more advanced stats, your most valuable season. And, you know, how has that helped your seemingly seamless transition into embracing this new data as a color commentator? And is it something you hope catches on with other analysts in the booth who happen to also be former ball players? Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, it's in every front office now. There seems like a race uh, amongst uh, different organizations to play catch up and then not only play catch up with their analytics department, but also protect their information as they develop it. I mean, there's so much data out there. I, I really believe that we're still kind of in the Wild West in terms of interpreting a lot of this new data, what makes sense and what doesn't, and what is more valuable than, than, than other sorts of reams of data. So, uh, yeah, I think more and more players and broadcasters are starting to 
to get into the flow a little bit. I think they understand it's the future of the game. Uh, for me, it really did begin back then. Even before that, um, you know, I was I was on some Mets teams where I had some 500 records, and uh, I thought I pitched better than that. And I just always was kind of a disgruntled pitcher that felt like one loss record wasn't enough to show the true value of a pitcher, particularly a starting pitcher. And uh, I went to a couple of arbitration cases against the Mets in the early 90s or with my agent, Steve Fear, uh, who was pretty progressive uh, during those years. And he showed me some some different ways to look at things, some groups of numbers, at least the, the type of numbers we had back then, probably the early days of sabermetrics that showed me uh, that we, we can peel back a few layers here and show some true value and try to give credit where credit is due. You also mentioned that uh, Bobby Valentine once asked you in, I think, 2011 if you were possibly interested in joining a coaching staff. And you obviously have the pedigree of personal success on the mound. You now have this you know, progressive mind towards uh, the new data that many coaching staffs want. Have you, has it ever crossed your mind to get back into the game in that form and maybe take on coaching? Or are you, are you set up in the booth right now? Yeah, I really do enjoy broadcasting at this point. You know, I think every year that goes by, I, I, I understand the business a little better. Uh, the rhythm and timing of uh, when to speak, when not to speak. Sometimes just being quiet. Sometimes screwed on television. And when to introduce the new metrics and when it's overload. Um, so, uh, you know, I, right now I'm pretty content in what I'm doing. You know, I've had a couple of opportunities to... You know, including Bobby Bobby Valentine's uh, gesture back then to uh, interview for a major league pitching coach job, but I just the timing wasn't right for me when those opportunities presented themselves. But you know, I would never totally close the door. I, mean, I would never say never, uh, but I, I realize how difficult it is to be a major league pitching coach now, and how fully immersed you have to be. It really is a year-round job, and there's so much more that goes into it than say, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I'd have to be ready to be fully committed. But, you know, as I said, I would never say never at this point. Yeah, Jack, you and David tell the story of when David was asked to throw at someone in the minors and he missed on purpose. Given everything that's going on in the game, especially recently with Tim Anderson debacle, what, what's your view on hitters getting plunked today after bat flips, showing emotion, and so on? Well, I'll give a short answer because Dave is the one who actually, who actually got that command, so he should probably answer that. But even as David told me that story, however many years later, I, I could see the, the sort of the concern in his eyes that here was a young kid trying to impress the, the Royals, trying to make their team. And, oh, by the way, we've got this little feud going on with the opposing team. Why don't you, why don't you drill this guy? And, and, and David, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I know that... I know that you talked about how that that unnerved you, and you just you just weren't going to do it. Essentially, yeah. I mean, the the command came from the late uh, Dick Hauser, who was uh, you know has a Yankee connection as as a coach there with the Yankees and manager, then as a manager of the Royals. And Tony Larusa was uh, the White Sox manager at the time, and it was my first big league game in spring training, my first appearance. And Hauser came up to me in the dugout before I was set to go out and pitch that inning, and told me to throw the first pitch as hard as I could behind the hitter's head. He, he told me, don't hit him. Don't hit him in the head. He said, throw it behind his head to send a message. And the hitter was uh, a guy named Russ Mormon, who was um, from the Kansas City area where I grew up. I actually knew Russ. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say we were friends, but I had enormous respect for him. And he was a legendary athlete in the Kansas City area. I just couldn't believe that this is what I'm going to do. And you know, I was completely overwhelmed by the moment. And I, 
I literally threw the ball up to the press box. I mean, if, as you know, the screen behind home plate and the screen that rolls up to the press box, that's where the ball went. It rolled all the way up to the press box and back down. And I was immediately thrown out of the game and uh, and then sent down to the minor league camp right after that game. So that, that was my first big league game in, in spring training. Definitely memorable. Um, you, uh, you you butted heads with some coaches over the years, whether it be not wanting to stick to a certain delivery or, or strategy about pitch outs and things like that. Can you think of any other Yankees during your time there that were uh, equally hard-headed? Uh, you know, there have been along the way. Uh, uh, the problem is, is that a lot of them get marginalized or get released or get labeled. And uh, once you get a label, or you, when you're trying to uh, to work your way up through the minor leagues, then you, you easily get passed over by other prospects or other players that are deemed more coachable or easier to work with. So I, I feel kind of fortunate that you know I was able to uh, push back and kind of maintain my style while at the same time, you know, I really did had to conform to a certain extent along the way just to, to kind of maintain relationships with, with the organizational pitching coaches. But it was a struggle for me all the way through. I just, uh, I, I always push back. I always, you know, I, I think it's a good thing to ask questions. It's a good thing to, uh, to try to challenge uh, authority with you, if you believe in your art that you're right, Terry, if you, if you believe in, a style that that, uh, that you want to, to continue to try to utilize. So uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, I was fortunate to break through and uh, still kind of maintain the style that I always uh, always felt was right for me. And that's one of the things that Jack covers so well in the book that when I went, when I was finally traded to the Mets, it was the first time in my career where they kind of embraced my style. Uh, Everybody on that team, from Wally Backman to Keith Hernandez to Gary Carter, just loved uh, the fact that I changed arm angles or threw sidearm sliders. And uh, they embraced me and embraced that style. It was really the first time in my career that I really felt kind of liberated that, hey, these guys not only encouraged me to be me, but uh, they liked the style. And uh, that was just a tremendous feeling for the first time. I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of blossomed with the Mets, uh, and, and certainly in 1988 when, when I won 20 games. I think that was the culmination of, for the first time in my career, I felt like I was with a, with a group of coaches and players that really embraced me. And, and Jack, when David was pitching, he was going deeper into games than most starters ever would today, of course, uh, being that the game has changed so much. How much of what's changed with starters' innings being limited do you think is due to injury concern? And how much do you think is due to the fact that the live arms in the bullpen um, are ready to take over in the sixth inning now? I think we'd have to say it's a combination of both. I, I, I don't have a, uh, a specific moment in history where, where things changed. I think it started out more as protecting starters, and I think it has now morphed into, well, we've got five guys in the bullpen. I mean, I'm thinking of the Yankees who, who throw 95 to 100. Why are we letting our, our pitcher go third time through the batting order? And David does a great job detailing some of this in the book, and he's talked about it on the air as well. There would be games with the Mets, for instance, where he might have 100 pitches in the fifth inning and he got back to the dugout and took a deep breath and said, okay, I got 30 more pitches. I, I can get this team through seven. Those, those days aren't happening anymore. We've, we've seen examples of pitchers being pulled out with, with no hitters after seven innings and in the 100-pitch neighborhood. And I think David does a good job of explaining in the book how 
you're never going to know who you're going to be at the 115 pitch mark if you never get a chance to get there. And as important as it is to protect your assets and and make sure that your pitcher's arms are, are going to be solid for 180 inning season, I do think sometimes protection can seep into coddling. And I, I don't mind seeing a guy get a chance to, to finish out his own his own start. It won't be a complete game anymore. It's almost as if seven innings is, is now the, uh, the new version of a complete game. David, one of the most exciting parts about the book was your first time revisiting your perfect game in a play-by-play manner watching it again with Jack and was I'm wondering was there ever a time on your viewpoint from the mound where you saw a ball put in play obviously there was the great play by O'Neill by Knobloch uh, the ball getting caught in the sun briefly by Ricky Leday. was there ever a point where the ball was put in play and before you turned around you had that mindset of that's it like th- this this run at history is over yeah, you know, I really have to point to the uh, the Jose, Jose Vidro at bat. Uh, you know, I think it was, you know the ground ball to Malblock that particular play. You know, it was a two zero count. I knew I had to throw a strike. Uh, you know, I didn't have a three a three ball count the entire day, and that's the big difference between a perfect game and a, and a no hitter. You know, a no hitter you can you can walk a guy. You can, you can you're not worried about the count as much. And, with Jose Vidro, I knew I had to throw a strike. I threw it right down the middle, about knee high. He smashed it. He hit it very hard. And I thought, that's it. The sound off the bat. I thought it was going up the middle for a hit. And block was positioned well. He had good range. He ran over and backhanded the ball. And then, of course, with Chuck at that particular time, that was right in the right in the middle of his throwing woes. And uh, he kind of had the yips a little bit. And, um, you know, he wheeled and dealed and threw a strike to first base. And that was the loudest here of the day. I think everybody in the ballpark knew what was going on and uh, you know it was at that point when I felt like I caught a break on a 2-0 fastball that I really had to give in on and, and it was hit well by Jose Vidro who's a very good hitter and uh, when Knobloch made that play I kind of felt like this might be my day. Speaking of uh, making a big pitch in, in crucial moments, you had uh, you talk about a crucial strikeout to Troy O'Leary in Game Two of the '99 ALCS, which actually happened to be the first playoff game me and Sean ever went to. But um, is, is there is there a single pitch, just one pitch that you made in your career that stands out as what you feel was like your best executed pitch in a big situation, like a certain instance that really stands out where you made your perfect pitch at, at a really high leverage point in a game? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Jack knows me so well. and Jack has a really great understanding of pitching. I sort of joke that Jack and I are kind of pitching nerds. Uh, we both have conversations that go pretty pretty in-depth that might be boring to some people. But there was a particular game when I was traded from the Mets to the Blue Jays, and we faced the A's in, in the, the LCS. And uh, Oakland was a great team. Ricky Henderson was their leadoff hitter. They had the Bash brothers, McGuire, McGuire and Seiko. Uh, uh, the shortstop on that team was Walt Weiss, and there was a, a point in that game where there was uh, uh, I, it was a scoring situation. I think there was one out. There's a runner on third. It was uh, a tight game. Um, uh, Walt Weiss uh, ran the count to three and two, and uh, Pat Borders, the catcher, called for a fastball, and I shook off to a slider. And it was probably the best backdoor slider I threw in my career, certainly in a high leverage situation. And, in a big-time game, and uh, I think that was probably the best slider I ever threw. It had really tight spin on it, 
and it broke perfectly uh, over the outside corner. And I got Walt Weiss looking on the call third strike. And, and then Carney Lansford was the next batter, and he was the right-handed batter. And I threw some pretty good sliders to strike him out. But uh, that was a big moment. Uh, you know, the Blue Jays, we had lost the first game one at home against the A's. And uh, that was game two of the LCS in 1992. And that sequence to Walt Weiss and us being able to win that game, I think, was probably one of the keys to the Blue Jays being able, being able to, to get past the A's and then on to the World Series for Canada's first. Jack, um, Cone started in that 99 ALCS with that against O'Leary. Um, is actually, in my opinion, one of his more underrated performances because even though they're up one nothing, Pedro's looming in game three of that series. Now that you've had the opportunity to go back through his whole career with him, is there one of the starts that stands out as maybe a more underrated performance? Well, that, that's a great question. It's, I, I don't think it's underrated, but I don't think you can talk enough about David coming back from aneurysm surgery, wondering if his career was over in 1996, doing the rehab and kind of almost sorting up the rehab and saying to the Yankees, I, I don't want to waste any bullets. Let's go. If, I, if I'm going to pitch, I need to pitch now. And then going out to Oakland and throwing a seven-inning no-hitter with his father in the stands. Like I said, it's gotten a lot of attention. People covered it then, and we still talk about it now. But to hear David take me back through those moments and, and the doubt about coming back. and I mean, think about it, guys. You have an aneurysm under your right armpit, and it's, they, they, have a, they graft it back together, and they tell you everything's going to be fine. You're still trying to throw the ball 90 miles an hour, and, and, and David wondered, is, is that thing going to tear open? Now, the doctors assured him, but you still get out there, and I think there's a little bit of doubt. And for him to pitch the way that he did in, in that situation, I was at that game, and, and I'll never forget the, uh, the vibe we were feeling in the press box about, is, is this guy really doing this after having been off for a few months? So that, that game really stands out to me. And, and David, you call that the um, most emotional game you ever pitched. And you said you were content with the decision to be removed despite having the no-hitter. But was there any part of you that, that wanted the fight to stay in that game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're, when you're in the middle, middle of the game, uh, you know, when you're uh, presented with that decision from your manager, you're not really thinking clearly. You know, I, I, I described to Jack that I was just kind of stunned the whole game. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like, uh, like Jack described. Uh, I couldn't believe this was happening either. I was just so thrilled uh, to be going through it. Uh, the fact that my father, who was my first pitching coach, was sitting right above the dugout and every time I walked off the inning I walked off in between innings I could, I could make eye contact with my father and all the way through yeah I mean if, obviously I wanted to stay in that game but, but Joe Torrey commanded such respect and the way he approached me and the way he described it to me is, is uh, more of a caring decision hey look we're, we're worried about your health if I let you go back out for the eighth you're gonna, you know, you get over a hundred pitches. Then you've got to pitch the ninth as well. And you know, I, I had only made two rehab starts, and my pitch count was 85 to, to 100 pitches that day. So, in order to complete that that no hitter, I probably would have had to push well past that point. So, I certainly understood the concern, but I think it was the way Joe Torre described it to me, and how much respect I had for him. And then he just turned around and walked away. He didn't allow any debate. So I remember just sitting back on the bench and being stunned and not really knowing what to say. And then Mel Stoudemire, the late great Mel, came up to me and, and kind of, uh, once again, uh, kind of uh, just in a nurturing way, just uh, 
explain to me the decision-making process behind it and that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to win the World Series this year. We're, you know, we've got bigger goals here. You know, uh, personal achievements are as much as a, as a no-hitter would be great. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got bigger fish to fry. Dave, one of the more enjoyable parts of the book was you diving into the dynamic between you, David Wells, and, and Joe Torre, because obviously that they butted heads at times, Wells with a more rebellious nature, and, and you kind of took it upon yourself to help manage that. You guys would share your own hotel room on road trips, and you had uh, you know hosted some parties, which was fun to imagine what that was probably like. Do you have any, uh, any funny stories from that mini party room? I know you said some celebrities and actors um, stopped by, and, and also any stories that you didn't share in the book about your and Mike Stanton's bathroom pranks that you used to pull in the locker room. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the uh, – yeah, I mean – it could get pretty boring in a major league clubhouse. So, yeah, I mean, uh, grown men will act like children, that's for sure. And uh, the, the type of humor, obviously, uh, there's communal showers, uh, there's communal bathrooms, so nothing is sacred. You see everything, you do everything, you make fun of everything. Uh, there's so much there uh, that uh, kind of uh, gets into the realm of kind of gross at times. You know, I mean, it, certainly uh, Stanton was, was uh, quite a character and uh as far as Boomer goes, in those that year in 1998, uh, you know, after he threw his perfect game, and then as that summer unfolded, you know, Paul O'Neill's described him as the best pitcher in the American League, really, the rest of the year, and that's kind of how we all viewed it. Every time he took the mound, uh, his confidence grew, and uh, every time we went on a road, we had a lot of fun. And I think I could just see him loosen up. He was the type of guy that needed a pat on the back. He needed a friend. And we we became very close uh, during that summer. And yes, uh, uh, on uh, on certain nights we had some great parties. I mean, everybody from Charlie Sheen would show up. Uh, musicians from Metallica, Lars the drummer, showed up. I mean, Boomer has uh, a lot of friends in the music industry, and. Uh, and uh, depending on which city we were in or which uh, which hotel we stayed in, yeah, there was there was always something happening. Always a group of really interesting celebs that showed up, uh, locals as well, friends we met over our years of traveling. And we had some great parties and some late nights, and uh, and uh, you know it just seemed to really uh, build a close friendship with with uh, with Boomer, and uh, and his confidence really grew the whole summer, uh, all the way through the World Series. So. You know, it was uh, one of the most remarkable years of my career, and uh, to this day, Boomer and I are still very close uh, because of our friendship during that year. Jack, you and Dave take a whole chapter to talk about that crucial sixth inning in Game 3 of the 96 World Series, and, and Jack talks about how he almost welcomed that bunt by Mark Lemke even before it was popped up in the air to Cecil. And, you know, with so many fans still clamoring for that version of softball or small ball, excuse me, do you uh, do you feel like most pitchers are like Cone and, and almost welcoming a bunt because it essentially just gives you an out? I, I think they should be. And, and think about David talking about that in 1996. I mean, if you listen to him in the booth in 2019, he's he's shouting it just as uh, loudly. Yes. Give me that out. Now you have to be able to field the ball and you have to be ready for it. But. I, I do think that in that situation, if you go back and, and read that chapter, and so much happened in that sixth inning, that's why we decided to do an entire chapter on it. We needed to, to break it out. 27-pitch inning, he walks in a run, he, he has the mound meeting with Torrey. But dissecting that inning, 
Lemke doesn't bunt, and, and Lemke puts the ball in play. And, and who knows how that inning might uh, might have unfolded differently. So I absolutely agree with David that, that Lemke and the Braves did him a favor there by bunting. And that mound conference with Torrey, David, has become part of Yankee lore in that inning. Um, how hard is it to walk that balance when Torrey comes out between your competitive fire and your pride, knowing that you can get McGriff out, while still kind of having what happened in 95 still fresh in your mind? Yes, I mean, that, that is really, uh, to me, uh, something that, uh, that I still think about. Uh, you know, the heartbreak of the 95 loss, the ball forward to Doug Strange, and here I am again. Bases loaded, another situation uh, in the next possible postseason game. Uh, the next possible big moment in the postseason game. Um, you know, it, I couldn't believe it, and, and I walked at another run. You know, I mean, that's the ironic part. In 95, I walked up Doug Strange with the bases loaded. And in 96, I walked Ryan Klesko with the bases loaded. So, uh, you know, luckily I had a little bit margin, more margin for error. And, uh, you know, can I get Fred McGriff out? Fred McGriff's a Hall of Fame player in my book. I mean, I know he hasn't quite uh, gotten the votes yet, but... Uh, he is a Hall of Fame caliber player, and I'm a right-handed pitcher, and he's a left-handed batter. So Joe Torre certainly could have been justified in making a move right there, but he trusted me, and he wanted to hear it from me. And no matter what I said to him on that mound, he wanted to get closer and make sure that we were nose-to-nose and made eye contact and so he could read you know, my emotions. And I really had to sell him that I was okay. And, uh, and of course, every pitcher who's worth his salt would say, yes, this is my game. I want to stay in this game. But, you know, Torrey needed a little bit more reassurance at that point. So it was, uh, it was the most remarkable mound meeting I've ever been involved with any, any manager because he almost grabbed me and pulled me close to him and said, hey, wait, no, this is too important. I need to know you're okay. And this is obviously still, I'm still on the heels of, of coming back from an aneurysm surgery at that point. So there was still some, some concern as to whether my arm was okay or not. But uh, I, I, I've always remembered that. I've always uh, been thankful to Joe Torrey for trusting me. And, uh, you know, even after the game, I, I was a little glib. And I said, well, I lied to him. You know, I did my best job of lying. And that was just me trying to trying to, to be glib in a post-game press conference. But the reality of it was, is, yeah, I did believe that that was my game. And I, I needed to stay in that game. And thankfully, it all worked out. Now, you know, you, you, you did believe in yourself. But would, would you have admitted to Joe if, if you felt you were gassed? And how does the pitcher know when he's at the end of his rope? Because I feel like... You know, you, you see, like you said, that any pitcher worth his salt would want to stay in the game. How does a pitcher identify, you know what, it's just, I'm done? Yeah, you know, the, I, I'm not sure the pitchers in that situation. I think the vast majority of pitchers probably don't know, or if they do, they're trained to trick themselves into believing that they can still still get the job done. Um, I think it's probably different in today's game where you have pitchers, as Jack said before, uh, they're, they're trained to go maximum effort, and then when that's done, then they're out of the game, and then you have a power reliever brought into the game. Um, you know, back then we were – we were trained to pitch with less. Uh, there was finesse that came out once you got a little bit fatigued. Uh, you learned how to pitch a little bit more the deeper you got into the game. So that was my era. You know, even if I was a little bit diminished, I still felt like I could take a little bit off my splitter or invent a pitch or go to my finesse game a little bit more. And the reason I had that game was because I was allowed to to pitch more and throw more pitches and to experience what it was like at the 115 pitch mark and to be able to create and 
subtract a little bit. And then Jack and I talk about less is more sometimes. And sometimes if you can back off some of your pitches, you, know, you can throw the timing off of hitters. So I always felt like I had something in, in my bag of tricks to be able to pitch, even if I was fatigued a little bit. We're talking with David Cohn and Jack Curry, the minds behind Full Count, the education of a pitcher. Uh, one last one, just to kind of put you on the hot seat, David. If it wasn't you on the mound that night, what what starter do you think who, who would have walked to the mound? Would you have felt like, okay, we got this, we can still save this series? Well, you know, game three, uh, you know, when you're down two games and you're on the road, uh, I certainly feel like Andy Pettit had that toughness. I think Andy Pettit was a big part of those runs, uh, particularly in 1996. I think he was our best pitcher that year, um, even though it was probably his first full year in the big leagues. Uh, I know he, he got a pretty good taste at 95 when he came up, but he really established himself in 96. So, I, I, you know, if there was one guy, especially in 1996, it would be Andy Pettit. Certainly a solid pick after the way he pitched in Game 5. But, again, that's David Cohn and Jack Curry. Uh, they're book full count comes out tuesday may 14th it's a great read guys uh great job on the book and thank you so much for talking with us we had an awesome time thanks a lot for having us guys yeah my pleasure man good job all right again thanks again David Cohn and Jack Curry. You can get their book that's been out now for about a week or so. And it's an awesome book. The New York Times bestselling list reflects that, and so does just the book itself. But, uh, Sean, I don't know if you've started reading it. I don't know if that's what you're looking forward to this weekend. I'll, we've got to wrap up here, so I think I'll just say real quick that what I'm looking forward to this weekend is not watching Game of Thrones because it's over in the last season. <laughs> Every every week we say that we were looking forward to watching it, but it's been ter- it was terrible. The ending was really bad. So now I'm looking forward to not being put through more disappointment. Well, I mean, you know, in the last two months, I caught up at, on completely on Game of Thrones from scratch, and I watched the whole Marvel movies. And just seeing Endgame on Friday, and then watching the finale of Thrones, what a difference it makes! It looked like I felt like Marvel took a little while to find its footing and understand its characters. And then, like, they finished so strong. Endgame was awesome. I absolutely loved it. And then for Game of Thrones to watch this thing that's great from the beginning and then just dive bomb in Season 8. And I thought Season 7 was a little bit rushed, but Season 8 was completely awful after the second episode, uh, in my opinion. It was pretty bad. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to – I got the uh, Star Wars – imperial walker or the new order walker i'm looking forward to putting that together this week for sure i got a three-day weekend it's raining out today so hopefully i'll get a little bit done after work nice sounds good uh, all, got. all right and that's all we've got uh hopefully next week there's some more yankee wins to talk about and some better news on the injury front but until then and enjoy the uh the replacements that keep uh, keeping these Yankees afloat and now in first place. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you later, everybody.